This is our 50th episode. Did you know that, Stephen? It is our 50th ep. You know, let me ask you something now that I'm saying. I think I've been saying episode. Episode? Is it episode or episode? It's certainly episode. It's not no. episode. Episode would be like a short audio program about the sort of surging and receding yeah. of a body of water. Mm-hmm. An episode. Mm-hmm. Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. No, what we should do, actually, like, there's, there's got to be two other friends named Stephen and Brandon. Yeah. And just see what they're up to. We should find these people. I've already found mine. There's a lot of me in prisons, a lot of huh. me in high school football in the South. There's a lot of me in professional football, actually. In professional yeah. sports, Stephen yeah, Jackson. Well. well, you know, I have a relationship with another Brandon Reynolds, the one who gets my email a lot of the time because we have oh. very similar email accounts. And so now he'll forward me stuff that comes to him. And that's how he kind of keeps up with my life. That's you know? fun. So it looks like you're being audited. That's fun. <laughs> you know. Hey, hey. Kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Like, so if you move to an apartment, it's pretty remarkable how clear of a window you get into the personal lives and private lives of the tenants before you. Like you get their mail, you know, if they're being audited, you know, if they owe money because people just keep getting the mail. Yeah. Like, I wonder how often people's identities are stolen by the new tenants. Just because you don't even really want to, you don't care that much, but you're like, I don't know. It's here. Might as well. I got, I got old tenants in my unit here. The tax man's after them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Easy. I got a, I got another guy who lived here, and I sometimes get uh, tax documents for his LLC. Start a business in his name. Well, I wouldn't want to. Not with the name of this LLC. What's the name of the LLC? Well, this is a family show. <laughs> well, but not really. <laughs> it's called Cock Donkey Productions, oh. LLC. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen some of their films. Have you? Yeah. Portugal. I have a greater affinity towards uh, their earlier work. It's kind of more art house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ever since the Marvel buyout. Just, <laughs> That's right. And all the whole universe just got so bifurcated. Nobody knew what was what. Yeah. Uh, but it's weird that like you get the you get this mail. It's out of place. It reminds you that especially as a renter, that you just sort of live in this space that someone else owns. And it's just like yours. Like I, my apartment is so my apartment, especially because we spent the pandemic here. It's my child's in the next room. Like this is my home. Yeah. But like when you get someone else's mail, you're reminded by that letter that you are in some ways out of place mm. in that space that you feel so comfortable in. You're so yeah. used to being yeah. there. We just take it for granted that this is where we belong. Yeah. But it's all manufactured, I think is what you're getting at. It's all lies. It's all lies. But we accept those lies because they benefit us in some way. This has been Journos. That's it. Wow. <laughs> Another flawless episode. But yeah, so today we're going to be talking about things out of place, actually. Yeah. Things that are out of place that we allow to be out of place. Mm-hmm. And the things that happen when those things go sideways, sometimes literally. Yep. Like, say, a tractor trailer. Maybe. Uh, and also things that used to have a place and don't have a place any longer, but maybe we're putting them back in that place. And should we? It's a lot of a lot of vagaries, Stephen. Well, yeah, a lot of vagaries, but I'm going to give you something specific that you could sink your metaphorical teeth into. Yeah, you ought to. 
because sometimes uh-huh. things are out of place and we find them to be a bit whimsical. Yeah, I would agree. It's sometimes fun to see, you know, the butterfly that has been sleeping in your shoe or whatever. Hey. Yeah. And some and a lot of times it seems like there's this uh a siren song for journalists to that causes them to sort of be mesmerized and hypnotized by a certain type of story. Yeah. Yeah, there are certain ones that we cannot resist. No. They write themselves as you say. And one of those stories is it's a type of news item that's very consistent and it is the classic story of Food and other items falling off of trucks and onto the road. The old, this thing got spilled on the highway story. Love it. It is a classic. Why? Well, it's easy. You got great visuals. Yeah. And for the humor deprived, uh, both the writers and the audience, it's an easy way to make funny happen. You certainly have the opportunity for some good puns, but also just the humor of the incongruity. That's really what it's about. It's like, well, here's this thing that doesn't belong here and now is. That's out of place, right? There was a story about a bunch of tomatoes falling off of a truck in California uh, on the I-80 outside of Vacaville, California, which is in between San Francisco and Sacramento. 150,000, quote, fist-sized tomatoes fell all over the the freeway and then uh way over in the south in memphis tennessee apparently thousands of jars of creamy alfredo sauce was spilled across multiple interstate highways yeah there's the local story hey this thing happened in our community guess what spilled this week and then when you notice a couple of these things happening around the same time then you do the kind of synthesis story. A little bit like what we're doing. And it makes us think once again about all of the crazy stuff that's being transported across this great nation of ours all the time. And how the only thing that keeps it from descending into disaster and spilled Alfredo sauce is a truck driver getting a good night's sleep, staying away from the meth, whatever it is, Stephen. Hey. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just positing. That's a blanket characterization. Stephen, as they say in the Central Valley of California on those signs, high winds may exist. It's this philosophical statement, but also a warning. High winds may exist. And maybe in this case, the tomatoes suffered for that. Well, it's not in Central California. It's up in Vacaville. Yeah, there's wind. <laughs> there's winds everywhere. The truck story is common enough that there is, luckily enough for us, a website called Yes, truckspills.com, which catalogs these disasters, let's Mm -hmm. say. And so just a quick scroll down gives you a sense of the kind of things that are traversing the United States at any given time and that have decided to, you know, rebel against the natural order. Go to truckspills.com and you will see entrails, Stephen. Yeah. You'll see wine spills. You'll see goats on the road. You'll see Brussels sprouts. Carnival prizes, porta potties, Olympic coins, mac and cheese, prescription drugs, and perhaps most hilariously, marbles. Horse blood. <laughs> yeah, horse blood <laughs> is funnier than marbles. That's true. But think about how hard that is to clean up the marbles. You know, people are slip sliding everywhere. Oh yeah, truckspills.com. It's such a wonderful little blog because it reminds me of. 
like a blog from 2003 for sure it's amazing and it's only a matter of time before this like old school like weird simple navigation wordpress template or tumblr blog comes back and like this is going to be like the cool thing again you know what didn't make it onto trucks bills this past summer what's that uh, a pretty big truck spill that occurred in the fine state of Pennsylvania. Uh, the truck was filled with hot dog filler. Hot dog filler. So it's the stuff that's put into the casings to make hot dogs. Got all over the street. Yeah, that's a good one. Stephen, let's apply some journos to this and, and figure out just really quickly what makes a perfect truck spill story. Okay. All right. You go through these stories and you're going to see certain recurring, let's call them themes, motifs, what have you. Okay. Of course, there's the basics, you know, what happened, right? Who hit what? It's usually a truck. Truck hit a thing. Truck hit a thing. Truck fell over. Yeah. Truck went sideways. Yeah. Then you got the big news is what's the thing that spilled? How many gallons? Yeah. How many raw numbers of things? Mm-hmm. People love to see that. They want to see 20,000 tomatoes. They want to see 150,000 gallons of hot dog filler. They want to see half a million marbles. Mm-hmm. They're more hesitant when it comes to live animals because there's always the risk that the animals have been hurt. That's less of a good story. But in general, if it's stuff spilled out, people like that kind of thing. Then you got the writer stretching their legs a little bit to describe what it's like to slog through it. It's always some cop or firefighter that's like, it was two feet thick. It was like walking through wet snow, whatever it is. There's always some description the visceral experience of trudging through this thing. How deep do your boots sink into it, etc. And then the story always ends with, what does it smell like? And this can go one of a number of ways. Yep. It can start out nice, if it's mm-hmm. mint toothpaste, for example. Oh, love that. Or it can start out bad, if it's entrails. Yeah. But the one takeaway from these stories, Stephen, yeah. the smell always gets worse. Yeah, because the sun starts hitting it. That's right. All right, so Stephen, let me ask you this. Why do people love the truck spill story so much? Why? Well, it's absurd, right? You have matter out of place. The tomatoes are not supposed to be on the highway. They're supposed to be in our Pomodoro. Exactly. So that inherent absurdity appeals to us. It's a thing that's here. It's supposed to go there. But I think there's a deeper explanation. And that is that it gives us this glimpse into what we consider the natural order. And by natural order, I don't mean nature. I just mean Mm. the order that we have constructed for ourselves of moving products around the supply chain that we know got interrupted with the pandemic. And we're seeing these points at which it breaks down with hilarious results. Mm. But also it reminds us that everything that we're doing in the world is manufactured. It's all a construct. And as long as all of these products stay neatly contained in their tractor trailers, everything's pretty much fine. Everything's working as it should be. But then when it breaks down, and trails in the streets, baby. Yeah. So there are things that we've constructed for ourselves that make sense because they're workable and they've gotten us to this point. Part of the modern conversation for us is how much we have to look back on the decisions we made that got us to this point and go, eh, maybe we should do things differently. Certainly the climate change conversation is the biggest part of that. 
right? Mm -hmm. Here's all the things that got us to this point, helped us develop our civilization. Now we're reaping the consequences. How do we fix some of that? And so some of the solutions that you see are reintroducing animals into ecosystems that we have kicked them out of or that they've been pushed out of or died out naturally or whatever it is. So there was a story that came out in The New Yorker, and it was all about resurrecting the woolly mammoth. Have you seen this story? I have. And it's like one of the biggest movie franchises in history is dedicated to warning us about doing this. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And that franchise is Harry Potter. I thought it was Gremlins, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't use magic on children and don't feed things after midnight. But, but seriously, it's like there are so many cautionary tales that tell us that this is just not a good idea. And, I, I, you know, like I don't want to be just sort of I don't want my mind to be clouded by all of these sort of high budget narratives. But I mean, first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about the story? Okay, well, the story is by the great Jill Lepore, one of the New Yorker's great writers. And it concerns these efforts to resurrect the woolly mammoth genetically, because we're finding all of these woolly mammoth carcasses as, in fact, as climate change is creating thaws, we're finding Mm -hmm. these preserved mammoths all over the place. Researchers are able to extract DNA from them enough to using CRISPR technology, which is sort of gene editing tech that won a Nobel Prize for Jennifer Doudna over at Berkeley. Use that to kind of reconstruct the genome of the woolly mammoth, create an embryo, implant it in an elephant, I think the Asian elephant, if I remember correctly, which is almost genetically identical to the woolly mammoth, produce a woolly mammoth. And then you turn it loose in places that the woolly mammoth used to hang out, like Siberia, right? Mm. Where there used to be these big grasslands, and underneath them were the permafrost. And the idea was that in the wintertime, there would be this great big layer of snow that would reflect light back into the atmosphere and prevent the world from warming up. So anyway, for one reason or another, the grasslands are dying out. So you're not getting that same refraction into the atmosphere of the snow like it used to be. And we have warming. Mm -hmm. So the idea is if you can resurrect the mammoth, the mammoth, like a lot of other big animals like the reindeer, will go and graze across this and essentially restore the grasslands to the way they used to be back in the day and thereby help us fight climate change. The mammoths return to us. Everything is going to be doesn't sound like the story ends there. And also, the New Yorker article points out that it sounds like it doesn't make really any sense as climate change mitigation, that it's, quote, too little, too late. Would this work? Or is this sort of just the venture capitalist biotech wet dream of the century? Yeah, I was somewhat surprised that Lepore was so convinced that it wasn't going to work in the story. The reason that it's thought that it might work is because in the 80s, there were these Russian scientists who created something called Pleistocene Park, not Jurassic Park, but Pleistocene mm. Park, which was a much simpler thing. Yeah. Where they cordoned off this area of the tundra and they brought in animals that had been there during the Pleistocene from the story reindeer, bison, and Yakut horses. Okay. They even brought in a Russian tank to mimic the mammoth to go around and flatten the flatten the lands. Oh, okay. Did they dress it up with the fur and stuff? Yeah, you got to. You got to play the part, Stephen. It sounds like just such like at the B-movie version of the first Jurassic Park. 
But they found out that it actually did work to make these step grasses grow, which is not the same as like a step sibling, but it's yeah. the grass of the steps. Like the steps where the horses came from, where the yes. Indo-Europeans came from. Yes. So the grasses reflect sunlight back into the atmosphere. Cool things keep the permafrost from melting. Yeah, because we really don't want that permafrost melting. Because within the permafrost lies a whole heck of a lot of carbon. That, yeah. when released into the atmosphere, is going to cause all sorts of problems related to climate change. How much carbon? Well, it's estimated around 1.5 trillion metric tons. Right. So if we can get these grasses to grow again, everything's great. One way to do that, dress up a Russian tank in a bunch of furs. Yep. Don't want to do that? Nope. Alternative, resurrect a woolly mammoth. Bring it back, baby. Bring it back, baby. Yeah, so this is something that has been covered a lot because it's an exciting, weird, interesting story. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. I bet it's just millions and millions and millions of dollars to actually like bring back one of these guys. Well, so, like, Stephen. Okay. Don't be a naysayer. As with any new technology, the price point is initially very high, and then the more you do it, the more the price comes down. If you try and buy a new woolly mammoth today, you're going to be paying top dollar for it. But if you wait a few years, wait for them to get a few miles on them, you're going to start to see them showing up in the previously used section of the mammoth lots. But like, how many mammoths would it take to really truly mitigate this impending climate change disaster? Talking about like a huge portion of land. I mean, I think you need to create herds and herds of mammoths. And maybe that's one of the problems is like you're reintroducing a species that went extinct a long time ago. You'd have to have a lot of them. They are by design being introduced to change the ecosystem. So the idea that we may not know all of the consequences of this thing, uh, you know, that's something to keep in mind. Now, the guy who's heading up this renew the mammoth operation is is a neanderthal close he's not a neanderthal but he is a very tall guy he could be genetically they walk among us that's true he's a guy named george church comes out of harvard he's a real celebrity geneticist he's an interesting guy really tall like six foot eight has this great big white beard white shock of hair wait a second very much like a Woolly Mammoth. Woolly Mammoth, yeah. Woolly Mammoth, yeah. <laughs> He's probably a Woolly Mammoth from the future, come back in disguise. He's just like three baby Woolly Mammoths in a trench coat. You get it. I get it. So George Church has a kind of long history with genetics. He was working on the original Human Genome Project and was in there in the early days. And one of his things was making this technology cheaper, right? Like you say, it's going to be expensive to produce one well. The more we can standardize this technology, the cheaper and quicker it'll get. So anyway, George Church wants to do the Mammoth Project, but he's also working on other things like engineering pigs to grow human organs that we can harvest Okay. for our own purposes. Okay. Organ pigs. You've heard this story too. Yeah. What are this guy's house looks like? I'll tell you, he probably has a lot of hot dog filling Yeah. in his freezer. <laughs> It's not hot dog feeling, man. So the idea that he has is you're not just going to bring the animal back in the original way. You modify it so that it slides more smoothly into the (laughs) hip-swinging 21st century rather than back in the day. 
Okay. I can't just help but picture like a swinging kind of pig with like, you know, big ears and big kidneys or something. Yeah, big, useful kidneys. You like want an ass, one? With an ascot? That's right. Yeah. It could be engineering pigs to solve male pattern baldness. So you'd mm-hmm. have pigs with these beautiful pompadours, Elvis style. Love that. Pigs with just great butts for people <laughs> who want, you know, butt implants or something. Pigs wearing that special kind of denim that really shapes the haunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You got to engineer the pig to grow that. Little rhinestones on it. George Church <laughs> is one of these who knows how to make a headline. He actually did pause it at one point. Maybe we should bring the Neanderthal back just to see what'll happen. Now, does he mean that? Does he not? He's just, as they say in the parlance of the modern times, he's just asking questions. So consequently, there is some skepticism about how serious he is about any of this stuff. Clearly, he's ready to make money because he has something like 20 companies that are all working on various technologies. Yeah. What does he want to bring the Neanderthal back for? I don't know if he even really did. Just to say, you know, it's possible and we should have the conversation about whether we should do it. He's not like, boy, we could put them to work. Well, that's when you got to stop listening to that guy. He's like, well, we should see what happens because it's not like you would just spawn an adult Neanderthal. You'd have like a Neanderthal baby that you'd like raise in a lab. Well, yeah, and I think... If I recall correctly, the idea was, you know, could you find a woman who would volunteer to carry that child? Wouldn't that be a wild adventure for somebody? The answer is, yeah, baby. Listen, we saw what happened in Encino Man. Yes, we did. That's nothing if not a cautionary tale. Encino Man is the Jurassic (laughs) Park of stoner Neanderthal movies. Yes. So Church has all these bits and pieces of different genomes of elephant species, of extinct mammoths. And so he's trying to figure out how many changes you need to make to get one viable thing that's going to do what you want. And that includes, like, you need to tinker with its genes so that you add layers of fat so that you have different kinds of shaggy hair. And then, and I think this is wild, he wants to engineer the mammoths to not have tusks so that they don't appeal to poachers. Oh, wow. Because there's always a crime to be committed. Yeah, there's obviously some way to exploit that. Now, the idea that somebody's not going to want to eat mammoth they're not going to be hunted for, you know, cool mammoth fur coats. Again, it sounds like we're talking about a lot of freaking mammoths. Sounds like the whole northern hemisphere of the planet Earth is just going to be lousy with mammoths suddenly, like pigeons in a city. What does this look like? How long is this going to take? I imagine it would take quite a while. You're not going to be able to pull it off with one or two. You would need a bunch of them. And I think maybe part of Jill Lepore's skepticism is, oh, this isn't just tinkering with some genes in a lab, implanting it in a single elephant, and nature takes care of the rest. It's No, this is a concerted effort over a long period of time. The alternative to that is, well, what if that's the only thing that'll fix it? I'm not saying I know, and I don't know that anybody has come down one way or another. However, we can derive some clues from another critter that enjoys eating grass that has also been introduced to ecosystems that it was in this case, killed off from. Harry Potter. That's the bison, (laughs) Stephen. The somewhat woolly bison. Okay. So the bison used to roam across the Great Plains of these United States in the millions, very important to the native tribes. They relied on them for their societies, for food, for shelter, for tools, all of this stuff. They lived in harmony with these animals. They did not overhunt them. They were able to follow them where they went. There was a whole ecosystem thing that was going on. 
the bison would move across the landscape. They would sort of mow down the grass. And then there would be this interesting thing that would happen that they called a green wave, where all of this grass would grow in the wake of these big herds. Mm -hmm. And that would have all these ecosystem effects, bringing in other species. The bison would roll. They would have these wallows where they roll around on the ground and they create these depressions in the earth. When those fill with water, Stephen, that becomes habitat for frogs and a particular species of flower that is the food for a rare kind of butterfly. So we know that the animals have been hunted down because in the 1800s, the white man decided, let's kill off the bison for reasons that we don't have a lot of time to go into here, but essentially because people are assholes. The difference between (laughs) the woolly mammoth and the bison is... The bison never went extinct. They're still modern enough that they're a part of this ecosystem. So there have been these concerted efforts over the last years, decades, to reintroduce the bison to these ecosystems and in that way rebuild them. Again, offers all of these climate advantages because you're restoring grasslands and also all this biodiversity advantage because the bison are keystone species, meaning when they're there, there's all of these cascade effects where all these other species can set up shop, hang Mm -hmm. out. And have a good time. So these efforts are headed up by many of the tribes, the Lakota, the Shoshone, the Arapaho. This is from a story in the Washington Post, which is a really good story, about how these tribes are helping to cultivate the animals and helping to have them spread. And the bison numbers were down to like the hundreds, and now they're up into the hundreds of thousands. So they're taking to this plan really well. Yeah. There are all sorts of unintended consequences too that occur once we start messing with nature you know with perfectly good intentions right we did this story a couple episodes back about how conservation efforts that led to an increase in the wolf population in places like germany caused voters in the region in which the wolves were brought back to lean more right wing in their political ideologies so i think that's where this cautionary tale bit comes back into play, bringing back the woolly mammoths. There are a lot of ideas that are really good on paper. And again, there is definitely an ecological or climate change mitigation need being addressed here, or hopefully being addressed. But it's also a startup company. It's a big venture-backed biotech company, right? And so there's always going to be some sort of interest in profits. Maybe that's why I keep wondering about like how many freaking mammoths is this going to take because then it starts to sound like a bit of a cash grab, like somebody's getting paid if you either own the genetics of the mammoth or like, let's say it just takes 15 years to make the first mammoth. You're getting paid. That's the fact that money is involved makes it all the more dicey, right? Yeah. To say we're going to bring back these keystone species and see what happens. And I think you bring up a good point, which is, When you're looking at these initiatives to reintroduce animals, it's important to ask who's doing it and why. Like in the case of the mammoth, this is absolutely a privately funded technology. Will there be a patent on the mammoth? Uh, That's one of the big questions, right? And, you know, George Church is working on a number of other things like how to slow down aging and the pigs, all of this stuff. So it could be that they own the genetic material. That they mm-hmm. own the IP behind these genetics, right? Insane. But on the other hand, then you have these efforts to reintroduce the bison, which is not owned by anyone in particular. It's just 
something that tribes and related parties are doing because they know it's going to be good for the ecosystem and they're seeing all these effects. Now, where you can see those conflicts is just like with the wolves, if you have bison that are trying to roam on someone's property, they don't want that. I mean, I'm just thinking of ways in which the initiative to reintroduce these animals runs up against, you know, whatever human interest animals tend to run up against. Also, another story about reintroducing beavers, which have been a notorious pain in the ass for a lot of ranchers in the West and the East because they reroute watercourses when they create their dams, they flood areas. So, you know, people who own property get sort of irritated. But now we're seeing beavers, when they build their dams, they're actually creating ways to store water, which is good for climate change. And kind of like with the bison, resurrecting these biodiverse habitats where all these animals can live. And and that then echoes down from one year to the next to the next, and it continues to expand. So in this New York Times article about the beaver, there's a quote from a, a woman named Carolyn Nash, who's a river scientist. And I think it kind of sums up the tension that we see now with the possibility. She says, quote, it's all about identifying those locations where beavers' survival interests align with human survival interests, and they're not always aligned. And so suggesting that they're always going to be aligned is creating a recipe, I think, for broken hopes and expectations and a loss of trust. So she's saying, you know, it's not always going to be as neat and tidy as that. And when you come in and say, we should always just reintroduce beavers wherever they want to go, put them in your apartment, let them build dams wherever they want. That's maybe not the best way to do it, but to have a more realistic vision of what an ecosystem looks like. And that's not one we've necessarily seen in the modern age. I mean, how do you imagine bringing species back when we have cities and things? Well, yeah, I guess with bison and the mammoths, right? The mammoths are way up there. Some of this works because there are these huge tracts of land where cities are not. You're not talking about herding the bison into Minneapolis. You're not talking about like having woolly mammoths running around Toronto. Like it's it's way the heck up in the northern reaches of the planet. But it just feels like we got a lot of problems, yeah. right? We got a lot yeah. of problems. And these are all problems pre-reintroduction of the woolly mammoth. So I feel like we gravitate towards these stories for the same reason that we gravitate towards these stories about tomatoes and Alfredo sauce and hot dog filling spilling on the road because we're fascinated with this idea that something may be or is somewhere where it shouldn't be. Yeah, I think there is a desire to see things fuck up, (laughs) right? Like we like to see it. And part of our interest in the woolly mammoth is the question of like, will it work? Yeah. You know, and if it doesn't work, what's that going to look like? And whatever the answer is, maybe something closer to, you know, looking at the bison, looking at the beavers. It's going to be really hard to try and roll back the clock in that way, because what are we going to have to give up to do it? And who are the people who should be responsible for that? It's about balancing the things we can control with the natural order that wants to assert itself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, the things get where they're supposed to go and do what they're supposed to do. And sometimes, you know. You got hot dogs in the streets. Yeah. This is Journos. It is and has been Journos. This is our 50th episode, and we are so happy that you're listening, and we hope you continue to do so. And we'd like to hear what you'd like to hear about. If you have ideas for stories, why don't you email them to us at journos at journos.net. That's right, journos at journos.net. Let us know what you want us to dig into, and we might just do that. But for now, 
I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I am Stephen Jackson. We'll see you next time. Take care.